Welcome to The Human Context, Timeless Questions in the Present Tense, a production of the Denver Project for Humanistic Inquiry, the Public Humanities Center at MSU Denver. Our podcast features topical conversations with scholars, philosophers, writers, and quite frankly, some of the greatest minds of our time, people who've really spent their lives studying and thinking about the questions we'll be discussing. For more information about our programs and events, please visit us at dphi.org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the program. bitterly cold late October morning. My analog foldable travel clock woke us up well before any signs of dawn. We really had no idea how long this hike was going to take, but we did figure we'd have to get up early in order to make it up the mountain and back again before sunset. This was mid to late 1990s, just north of Gantuk on the border between the Indian state of Sikkim and uh, Tibet. I'd spent the past couple months traveling with my good friend Pasang Tamang, who came from a small village in Sikkim that just literally clung to the side of Himalayan mountain. He was, for lack of a better term, a devout Vajrayana Buddhist. And we'd been hiking and hitchhiking throughout the region in order to visit various temples and Buddhist shrines and monasteries. Over the past couple days, we'd been hearing rumors about a monk who'd left everything behind and had been living for years in complete isolation as a kind of hermit at the top of a nearby mountain. But it wasn't entirely clear whether this was just some local lore or some religious allegory, so naturally we set off to see for ourselves. We stuffed our packs with rice and some fruit because we figured if this guy actually did exist and we disturbed his solitude and tranquility, (laughs) then, well, we'd better at least have something to offer him in exchange for our intrusion. Now, one might think we were actually foolish to have harbored any doubts about this hermit in the first place. After all, within the Eastern traditions, whether it be Buddhism or Jainism or perhaps especially Hindu tradition with the sannyasins and the sadhus, the idea of seeking refuge in nature in order to carry out an existence of solitude and, and asceticism is fairly widespread. And a similar ideal played an important role at various points within the Western traditions. Take, for example, St. Anthony, who uh, in the third century of the Common Era wandered off into the Egyptian desert. Now, he wasn't the first Christian monk, but he was certainly among the most popular. Roughly a decade after his death, St. Athanasius wrote that Anthony had inspired so many young Christians to pursue a life of solitude that literally thousands of them followed him off into the, into the wilderness, ironically transforming the Egyptian desert into a city. Now, unlike Anthony's desert, or the top of Mount Everest these days, for that matter, the small Himalayan mountain we were hiking was no city. In fact, there was neither trail nor even signpost, but only one direction up. And of course, we had no idea what we'd find, if anything at all. By the time we were finally nearing the crest, we were totally exhausted, but we'd spotted the first signs of hermit life. A couple piles of debris, uh, two badly rusted barrels, which I can only assume were used to collect rainwater, and then finally, a small kind of shanty, poorly constructed uh, shack that seemed to be insulated with newspaper clippings. 
and yet still no monk. So I remember cautiously approaching the shack and kind of bending over to, to stick my head in the entrance. And sure enough, there he was. He was a surprisingly young man. Couldn't have been much older than I was at the time, 18 or 19 years old. And he was looking rather gaunt with a long but thin beard. And he gestured for us to uh, come into the, into the shack. We pulled the rice and, and uh, fruit out of our bag. And basically we just sat there. Um, he didn't seem particularly upset nor particularly pleased that we that we uh, had visited him. Though, of course, you know, who knows how he would have responded had we not shown up with the bananas. Now, a Himalayan mountaintop, like an Egyptian desert, is a rather exotic place for someone to seek solitude. But over the centuries, people have tried to seek solitude in the context of, let's say, less romantic environments within cities or within homes. Augustine, for example, in a garden in Milan, or Montaigne in his tower, which, believe it or not, is really only situated a stone's throw away from the house where his wife and kids were living at the time. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people had extolled the spiritual, moral, and intellectual virtues of solitude, and they deliberately sought it within the context of their lives. And then, after these hundreds, if not thousands of years, along comes the coronavirus. By the end of March 2020, 2.6 billion people are subject to some form of stay-at-home orders. That means roughly a third of the Earth's population is more or less forced into a more solitary form of daily life. But between all the Zoom meetings and phone calls and social media and news reports, my little desert is beginning to feel more like a city. I'm Adam Graves, your host, and with me today to talk about the nature of solitude and the prospects for achieving solitude in a time of social distancing is Melissa Lane, class of 1943, professor of politics and director of the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Dr. Lane is also a faculty member in the Department of Classics and the Department of Philosophy. Her many books include The Birth of Politics, Eight Greek and Roman Political Ideas and Why They Matter, Eco-Republic, and Plato's Progeny. Melissa Lane, thank you so much for joining our program this morning. Thanks, Adam. It's great to talk to you. You know, before we begin, I should ask you where you're speaking to us from and whether you're currently under a stay-at-home order. I'm speaking to you from Princeton, New Jersey. We are under a stay-at-home order. As you know, New Jersey has been pretty hard hit, although in the last few days, uh, Mercer County, where Princeton is located, has shown a pretty dramatic decline in a number of statistics regarding the virus. So we're cautiously optimistic, but we know there's still a long way to go. That's that's good. Yeah, I, I know you're at the epicenter, so I'm I'm glad that maybe you're turning a leaf now. Um, obviously, you know I don't want to I don't want to romanticize social distancing at all. But eventually, I'm going to want to ask you whether or not you found greater or fewer occasions for solitude and contemplation as a result of of those measures or the situation. But first, I think we should step back and just clarify what we mean by solitude, or rather, what it's meant over the centuries within the Western intellectual tradition. Yeah, thank you. It's a really good question. I think one of the interesting things about solitude as a philosophical and kind of intellectual topic is that it often, I think most often, not always, but often has the connotation of being something chosen. And so I think that does actually 
complicate the uh, social distancing story mm. in a way that we might want to come back to. But, you know, as opposed to loneliness or like an enforced solitary confinement or something like that. And of course, sometimes people can transform solitary confinement into a meaningful solitude. But that's, I think, kind of a special case. But I think very often as it's been romanticized or idealized or valued, it's been something that one chooses as a form of conscious withdrawal from society and a kind of counterpoint to the values or disvalues that are experienced in society. Solitude represents a kind of withdrawal into a different sphere that brings its own values, if also sometimes its own risks as well. That's interesting. And is this notion of solitude as a withdrawal from society, would you trace that all the way back to, say, the Greeks, Plato and, and Aristotle, and perhaps the person of Socrates? Or would you say that at least in that, the beginnings of Western philosophy, the notion of, of solitude was slightly different? It sounds to me like the notion of solitude that you're working with is one that emerges out of a religious context. I'm thinking of the Desert Fathers, perhaps, the monastic traditions of the uh, Middle Ages. Would you say that solitude meant something different for the Greeks? Well, I think that it's a question of what we mean by withdrawal. So I think that very broadly understood, we can have the same definition. So if you think of like when Plato thinks about solitude, he's thinking about what you do in your own mind when you're thinking that you're in a silent dialogue with yourself. And one of the interesting things about that is that that models sort of solitary reflection on conversation. So that in itself is something we might want to talk more about. So with the withdrawal for the Greeks is a sort of withdrawal from the activities of the polis into a contemplative mode. Whereas in the in the early Christian monastic tradition and the desert fathers and mothers, in fact, the medieval, at least um, late antique and medieval women who also withdrew, that, that becomes a physical. We're going to actually leave the boundaries of the city or of the, the civilized society and go into a different physical space. For the Greeks, it didn't necessarily mean a different physical space, but I think there was still that idea of a kind of internal withdrawal still um, holds true. So the internal withdrawal that takes place within the context of the polis I'm reminded of the passage, I think it's in the Phaedrus, where Socrates is wandering outside of the walls of the city. And I think he remarks that something about he actually prefers the city to the countryside because in the city people you know, speak to him and he can learn, but the trees don't speak to him. I've always thought that was an interesting comment about Socrates and his, his preference for the urbane environment. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I think, you know, one of the themes that goes through the whole subsequent tradition is this question of what is the role of nature in solitude? So for some people, as you say, for Socrates, nature, going into solitude wouldn't be enhanced by being in nature. There wouldn't be anything in from that. Whereas, of course, you know, for people, the transcendentalists, the romantics, being in nature is actually in some ways a form of communion with not another human being. So it might still be figured as a kind of solitude, but there can be a sort of communion with the natural world or with God behind nature for some that has a different kind of valence. Is that kind of fascination with nature, would you trace that back to the Desert Fathers and Mothers? Did they have in your, uh, as you understand them, a, an appreciation of nature or was nature, did the harshness of nature represent something of a trial, a test, a challenge? 
I think it's more the trial notion. So it represents the purgation, the purgatory sort of stage of um, a, a path to a kind of unification with God. But it's very much about withstanding the harshness of the desert environment and the the seeming indignities that it imposes and sort of overcoming those as a way of being able to focus one's mind on what's really important, which is a communion with the divine. I was in preparation for this conversation. I opened up my uh, copy of Eva Grius's The Practicos, and I came across a passage where he says that solitude is a means of extinguishing the flames of desire. And I thought, how very Buddhist uh, that, that, that sounds. <laughs> Now, at this point, I imagine at least some of you might be wondering, who exactly were these desert fathers and mothers after all? Well, the short answer is that they were Christian hermits, largely in Egypt, from roughly the 3rd to 5th centuries. Inspired by the teachings of Christ, they'd sell off their possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and then they'd head off into the desert in search of a life of simplicity and austerity. They developed special meditative or mystical practices involving inner silence and continual prayer, not unlike those found in certain Buddhist traditions. And some even wrote rather sophisticated psychological analyses, mostly intended to help others ward off wicked thoughts or sinful desires. Many of these so-called hermits eventually wound up living in informal groups, and the rules they adopted for their communities became the basis upon which many of the later Christian monastic orders, such as the Benedictines, were founded. That, that's interesting. So would you say there's a, a tension then between these two conceptions of solitude? One, uh, a kind of solitude that can be had within the context of perhaps the city or within the context of your home, and another conception, perhaps a more romantic conception, like you said, that's exemplified perhaps by the American transcendentalists who want to claim that you have to be out there in nature, communing with nature. Is there a, a tension between these two, or do you think of them as really being kind of complementary or just two sides of the same coin? I don't know if there's a tension. I mean, I think we can still have this idea that you're withdrawing from social interaction with other people. So that seems common to the two, that even if you're still living in the city, the moment of solitary contemplation is not a moment of engagement with the sort of ordinary getting and spending and, you know, the ordinary mm -hmm. political engagements. I mean, one very interesting sort of idea that crosses over that tension in a certain way is the role of friendship. So there are certain idealizations of friendship. And again, going back even, I think, to Plato and Aristotle, where your communion with the friend is so perfect that it it somehow your solitude is sort of expanded into a kind of double communion, but you're still mm. free of the, the sort of um, encroachments of the ordinary social life, which isn't a perfect mutual misunderstanding. So there's some interesting ways in which, and the Epicurean communities also had a version of that. I mean, they sort of placed themselves in the garden. Famously, Epicurus founded his school in a garden, and it's referred to that way. And they want to withdraw from the ordinary social life, but then enjoy the perfect Epicurean friendship. Um, and that it's not exactly solitude, but it's also not exactly ordinary society, you know, so there's, mm -hmm. and it shares in mm -hmm. some, it shares in this kind of perfect self-communion idea of solitude, even though mm -hmm. paradoxically it's between two. 
Yeah. So according to that conception of solitude, one can experience a kind of solitude, even say among uh, living with one's family uh, or perhaps even children, (laughs) certainly with a a friend or a companion. It kind of reminds me a bit of the passage in Aristotle's Nicobachean Ethics, where he you know, he mentions the highest good being self-sufficient, but then he quickly clarifies that self-sufficiency has nothing to do with, you know, living alone independently of one's wife or family or or children or whatnot, or friends, especially, I suppose, for him. Um, right. I mean, that's a really good, important point. And I think what it brings out also is that as I began by saying solitude is this is most I think standardly, although again, not always conceived as this deliberate choice, but it's also a counterpoint to society. You know, I I think no one who's valorized solitude or almost no one would value the solitary life forever uninterrupted by society. I mean, maybe some of the desert, Mm -hmm. that desert anchorite conception, but that's pretty rare. And even many of those Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. you know, stayed a number of years. There was a sort of view that you did your time, you know, you Mm -hmm. you spent many years, but then you might go back even into a a community of monks, you know, but maybe not fully back into the city, but also Mm -hmm. not lives in solitude for your entire life, but rather for a period of time. So there's this sort of counterpoint rhythm between solitude and society that I think is often conceived as giving both of them their value. So if you had only solitude with no society, again, you might even lack the the model for how to behave in solitude, for sort of befriending yourself, engaging in your own self-conversation within your own mind, engaging in reading, which can also be conceived as a kind of conversation that you can have even within solitude, you know, reading as a way of conversing with the dead, which both Machiavelli and Montaigne talk about. Um, but, Mm -hmm. But then equally society might lose its value if you're always unremittingly immersed in society and never have the opportunity to develop those inner resources. So I think that the counterpoint dynamic is actually a really helpful way of thinking about it. And, you know, Aristotle, to bring it back to your point about Aristotle, Aristotle would say humans, the highest thing in us is this capacity which we share with the divine for perfect contemplation. But that's not the only thing in us and human beings. We also have the capacity for practical wisdom, for the moral virtues, and we also have to exercise that. And so we would also have to ideally live a life in the polis, even though we have these passages of contemplation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's this uh, tradition of thinking about solitude as a moment in one's life or something that one perhaps occasionally makes recourse to or something in order to perhaps, I'm not sure, uh, do we learn something from solitude? (laughs) Are there lessons that we bring back to society after these moments of isolation, relative isolation? I think broadly speaking, yes. But again, the the actual thing that it is that we bring back differs according to the philosophical conception. So, you know, for Plato or Aristotle, what you bring back is a, a theoretical understanding of the eternal natures and su- nature and substance kind of of mm-hmm. the world. So, you know, you would be sort of at one with the divi- with what Aristotle would think of as the prime mover, which is mind thinking itself, in a sense, um, mm-hmm. for religious thinkers, depending on the exact conception of the religion, it would be some sort of union with the divine or perhaps for the Buddhists, you know, understanding the nature of nothingness, depending on the religious conception. Again, depending on your view of nature. So for uh, Emerson and Thoreau, 
especially the early Thoreau, nature is a kind of repository of a, a deeper kind of insight or truth that being solitary in nature may give us some purchase on, but it may always, especially for Thoreau, it all it may always remain somewhat elusive. So it's very mm -hmm. characteristic in Thoreau that he's always alert in nature. He's sort of hearkening and trying to listen to what nature might be telling him, but it's not clear that you ever kind of fully are able to grasp it. But then in contrast for Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in his Reveries of a Solitary Walker, it's really just a moment of losing your sense of consciousness and awareness and a kind of healing solace that you can temporarily experience in nature. So I think the nature of the kind of lessons that you bring back can be very diverse. You know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about something that I heard you say about, I think it was a comment about John Cassian or, or perhaps one of uh, a reader of John Cassian, but it had to do with some of the suspicions that the tradition has had regarding the pitfalls of solitude. Yeah, so John Cassian is one of these early um, thinkers about what it means for Christians to go into the desert and to go into either sort of pure solitude in the desert or into monastic communities. So there's a choice between the life of the anchorite, which is the kind of modeled as the person who's living on top of a pillar for 30 years or complete or seemingly complete isolation versus living in a monastic community where you're under the rule of a an abbot who would be, or a, a head who would be directing your activities and you would be engaging in some communal activities, but also have time for solitary prayer. And and one of the remarks that Cassian makes um, is that what's so interesting, so he had himself lived both lives and he's asked to kind of comment on what are the spiritual benefits and pitfalls of each life. And one of the things that he says that's so interesting is one of the dangers in the desert is, well, twofold. One is you are uniquely responsible for doing all of your own material provisioning. And that in itself is can be very time consuming, which I, I think is an interesting thought from the mm. social distancing perspective. Mm -hmm. But then even mm -hmm. an even greater distraction is that when you're in solitude, you might paradoxically fall back on thinking about any interactions that you've had and they may sort of be blown up in your imagination and your role in them may be blown up. So your ego may actually swell. So you spend, you know, you spend 20 years thinking about this one thing that this other monk said to you right before you left the community in order to go into the desert. It's that, I mean, he's literally talking about that sort of obsessiveness. And so the thought is that when you're in a monastic community with more of this dialectical counterpoint between community and solitude, in a way, those ongoing frameworks for interaction sort of can curb your ego, as can being under the rule of the head of the community. And then you also have, you know, you're collaborating to provide for your material needs. So that obsession can also be taken away from you. And so paradoxically, you may be more free when you actually have your few hours of solitude to actually achieve the goal of union with the divine than the desert uh, figures are who seem to be spending all their time doing that, but actually, you know, are engaged in this combination perhaps of um, inflated self-awareness and material requirements. That's really interesting. So maybe we should pivot now and talk a little bit about this tradition of thinking about solitude within the context of social distancing and the stay-at-home orders and the quarantine. Obviously, to some extent, I think the, this 
way of life that's been imposed upon us by COVID-19 is simplified life. And I don't know, for many of us and days seem to pass more quickly that sometimes I think, at least in my case, provides a kind of more pronounced rhythm to, to my life and a greater sense of really that upon which my life materially depends, <laughs> kind of connecting it back to uh, John Cassian's comment. Do you think that this moment provides greater occasions for solitude and the kind of contemplation associated with it? I think not necessarily automatically. I mean, so to go back to the point about, you know, normally, ideally, it would be self-chosen. And so the fact that it's been imposed upon us, you know, so drastically overnight, effectively, in most places, means that it's more like the situation of the stoic sage who's imprisoned or something like that, where Mm -hmm. something's been done to you externally. And then the challenge is, how do you find meaning and sort of true solitude within that? You know, Mm -hmm. and we can also think Mm -hmm. in our own time of Nelson Mandela and the prisoners from the Rivonia trial and other trials Mm -hmm. and other um, political trials in South Africa and elsewhere who had to try to find a meaning in their imposed solitary, for for some of the period anyway, solitary confinement. Mm -hmm or at least largely solitary confinement, maybe not fully solitary in most cases. And, and, and I think that's actually really a challenge. And it's interesting that a lot of what we hear about with, with social distancing, a lot of the articles and things have been more about how do you find community in the moment mm-hmm. of social distancing. But I think mm-hmm. there's been relatively less about how do you find meaningful solitude, but that may actually mm-hmm. be an equally important question to ask, because I think for many people, it's either getting eaten up with the you know, material needs, which, as you say, kind of loom much larger in our routines for meeting them have mm-hmm. been so substantially disrupted. And so we have to think about them in a way that we didn't before. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, we, we're sort of very eager to make these social ties, which which we're sort of physically deprived of, but then not necessarily so good at actually saying we have to also make meaningful the moments of solitude. And, and I think it is worth mm-hmm. reflecting mm-hmm. on, you know, how and whether we're succeeding in doing that. And of course, for people who are in very close proximity to others in, in small living spaces in particular, perhaps without much access to outdoor space in many countries, that's been very significantly restricted for many people. That is either because of their own health issues or because of the orders that they're under. You know, I think that does pose a special challenge. What does it mean to negotiate those spaces for meaningful solitude in the mm-hmm. you know confines of cramped living situations as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also thinking a little bit about what you said. There is a tradition of of engaging in reading while in solitude. So solitude doesn't just always mean being alone with one's own thoughts, but also being alone with another's thoughts as written in a text. Or this tradition that Montaigne mentions where you live as if you're always in the presence of a, of a great author or great figure. You know, it's fitting that the first episode of The Human Context contains so many references to the 16th century French author Michel de Montaigne. Montaigne was not only one of the most important humanists and philosophers of the French Renaissance, but he more or less single-handedly invented the literary genre known as the essay. He was a member of parliament and mayor of the city of Bordeaux before retiring early to his family estate, where he spent much of the rest of his life perched in his personal library at the top of a tower, composing provocative essays on various topics of both universal and contemporary importance. And his treatment of those topics was typically festooned with references to the great authors of the Western canon, Plutarch, Lucretius, Cicero. Needless to say, one of his essays was dedicated to the subject of solitude. 
And were it not for the fact that Montaigne has set such a high bar, I might even say that his essays represent something of a forerunner to our humble podcast. Today, what I what I find is that you know I, I, I'm increasingly engaging with social media. I'm increasingly watching the news, uh, reading the newspaper, and I'm wondering um, that kind of engagement I think feels very different from say sitting on the sofa with a classic in my hands. And I, I'm wondering if that has something to do with the fact that the words of the of a classic work you know issue forth from a distant past in the way that the author's voice now only lives within me. And so I, there's a kind of proximity there that very different from the proximity I have with my friends and in some cases very distant friends via social media. Um, I'm wondering if you think that the various forms of media that have kind of flooded, inundated our lives during these stay-at-home measures perhaps contribute to the difficulties of the challenges of kind of making this a moment for contemplation. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought that was exactly what I was getting at, that in a way, we're, we've been so concerned with thinking what we're what we're lacking in this moment is social yeah. engagement, that we're so focused on that and sort of replacing that and all these ersatz ways through social media, through Zoom calls and so on. But we haven't thought actually what we may also be deprived of is meaningful solitude, either mm-hmm. because of the mental pressures, because of the physical, financial pressures that people are under, because of the social social um, context of being at home, you know, and perhaps unable to go sufficiently outside with others. So so I actually think that it is a, a kind of important mental challenge to face that. I mean, I myself, I've been taking an hour long walk every day and, and I've chosen deliberately not to listen to podcasts, which a lot of my friends listen to podcasts or they listen to books on mm-hmm, tape or mm-hmm. something. But actually I find that I'm, I'm getting so much input into my ears, you know, and into my screen mm-hmm. for the whole mm-hmm. rest of the day that actually having an hour of solitude where I'm walking and trying to sort of do a contemplative walk and listen to the sounds of nature, not actually having social words of others come in is mm-hmm. actually, you know, mm-hmm. for me, um, very, very helpful to, to try. Yeah. To do. I also well, have a friend. That- yeah. Oh, so I was going to say, that's great advice, except for this is a podcast. Well, I know. <laughs> I'm just I mean, kidding. No, yeah, no, it's true. So everybody, you know, hit stop, take the earbuds out of your ears and listen to the to the, to the the world around you. Yeah. Um, sorry, I interrupted. No, no. I, mean, I was just going to say, you know, I was struck by a conversation with a friend recently. She's someone who's had for years a 45-minute driving commute each way, and she's always use that time to talk on the phone with friends or to do things. But she said, it's amazing. I have an hour and a half in my life that I didn't have before. And she really has been using that for journaling and sort of solitary reflection. Like she's really actively chosen to, you know, to sort of make that time sacred in a way and recoup it for herself. And that that was very kind of instructive for me to hear how deliberate she's been about that. But I think it takes that sort of deliberateness if you have the luxury of being able to do it, you know, to make Mm -hmm. solitude meaningful and not simply lose it again in the effort to reconstruct society. Uh, Yeah, that reminds me of this uh, passage that I noted in in Montaigne, where he says, it's not enough just to withdraw from society, but to withdraw from the attributes of society within us. And it seems like it turns out to be a lot more difficult to do that than uh, one might have thought. And this moment of self-quarantine and and, uh, stay-at-home orders and shelter in place seems to make that pretty clear. 
Melissa Lane, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really a pleasure talking to you and getting your insight on, on solitude and a variety of subjects. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to talk to you as well. That's it for this episode of The Human Context. I'd like to thank Gabriel Grinsteiner, Hannah Warner, our editor, Kelsey Percival, MSU Denver, and especially you, our listeners. If you enjoyed today's program, please subscribe. And for more information about our programs and events, please visit us at dphi.org.